Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. One thing in particular that I like about the podcast format versus radio or television is that I'm not being threatened constantly by a clock. I mentioned that we leave out the commercials, the sports, the weather, and all that stuff. But there's also little attention paid to the clock. If what I'm talking about has a lot of information that I feel is important to share, I can use whatever amount of time is necessary. That doesn't mean you'll listen to all of it, but it does at least mean that I can provide all of the information I think is important. And that's by way of warning that this show is going to be a good bit longer than usual. The target audience for Adobe Sound Booth is people who need to work with audio, even if they are not exactly audio professionals. For the audio professionals, Adobe offers Audition. But Audition has features and functions that do little more than confuse people with a fairly limited or basic understanding of how audio works. What surprised me is how much SoundBooth allows an audio novice to accomplish. When SoundBooth came in, I took a quick look at it, read the information about it. Oh, this is an audio program for people who don't know much about audio. Well, this is going to be good, I thought. And about 15 minutes later, I decided, yeah, this is going to be good, really. Much as Photoshop Elements makes many of Photoshop's capabilities available to those who don't have the time or the desire to master all of the tools provided there, SoundBooth puts a simplified set of tools in the hands of inexperienced audio users. These are the tools that are most often available through presets, but in some cases, SoundBooth provides additional adjustments that can be used if you need to tweak the sound just a little bit. So I didn't really expect a lot from SoundBooth, because I've used digital audio editors that cost thousands of dollars, and I've used high-end digital editing programs that cost two or three times what SoundBooth does. Because of that attitude, I spent a lot of time retrieving my jaw from the floor. Take the disappearing cell phone, for example. Maybe you have an audio track that contains a sharp noise that occupies a relatively small part of the range of frequencies. The Remove Noise feature will allow you to identify that sound and remove it. To create a test, I held a cell phone near the microphone and had it ring while I was speaking. Here's something pretty amazing. I'm going to continue talking and my cell phone is going to ring. If I can get rid of this sound, that would be a good thing. In addition to the standard waveform that most people have seen to represent sound, SoundBooth uses a spectral display that allows you to easily identify noises at specific frequencies. Here's my first attempt at removing the cell phone noise. Here's something pretty amazing. I'm going to continue talking and my cell phone is going to ring. If I can get rid of this sound, that would be a good thing. As you can hear, most of the sound is gone. I did that by selecting some areas of the spectrum and then just simply deleting them. 
I missed a couple of sounds that were at other frequencies, so then I tried to get rid of those, too. Here's something pretty amazing. I'm going to continue talking, and my cell phone is going to ring. If I can get rid of this sound, that would be a good thing. So now most of that cell phone noise is gone. Most of it, almost all of it. In fact, if you didn't know it had been there, you probably wouldn't notice. That is amazing, particularly considering sound booths cost and its simplicity of use. So the question is, does sound booth compete with Adobe Audition? No. Just as Adobe has two editions for photo editing, Photoshop for professionals, and Photoshop Elements for those who need to make those basic improvements to images without learning all the stuff the pros need to know, well, the company offers Audition for audio professionals, Soundbooth for those who need to improve audio, even if they don't understand the difference between bit rate and bit depth. It's important to fit the tool to the job and the person who will use the tool. If you need to hang a calendar, you'll want a small nail and a light hammer, not a spike and a sledgehammer. That's fitting the tool to the job. If you're a snapshot photographer who doesn't care about aperture, shutter speed, or depth of focus, you'll probably be happier with a point-and-shoot camera than with a fully adjustable camera. That's fitting the tool to the user. Audition has far more features than Soundbooth, but learning how they work might require more time than you want to allot to the task. So pick the right tool for the job and the right tool for yourself. One of the first things you'll notice about Audition, in addition to the higher price, is the presence of a 300-page manual that explains audio, the differences between analog and digital recording, and how Audition works. Now, I've been working with audio in one form or another since about 1963, but the Audition interface is more than a little intimidating. Soundbooth, on the other hand, has a simplified interface that makes the basic functions accessible even to somebody with no experience. The current version of Audition is CS3. The current edition of Soundbooth is CS4. Actually, Audition has been broken away from the Creative Suite family. It's its own separate program now and probably won't continue to be updated on the same schedule as the Creative Suite. I mentioned the book. It's essential. You can't master or even begin to use Audition until you read and comprehend the manual, or at least look through it. Doing so unlocks the secrets to the kingdom of good audio, but it also takes more than 12 minutes, which is about all that some people are willing to give to mastering an application. So if you're not willing to take the time to read, stick with Soundbooth. You'll still need to learn how the tool works, but the process will not be as long and involved as with Audition. And if you do pick Audition, plan to buy a couple more books. The book that comes with the program is fine as far as it goes. But you're going to need some advice from some audio professionals. You know, the first time I set foot in a radio station was about oh, 1963, I think. The first time anybody let me touch anything in the radio station was oh, probably about 1964. Radio station's control room had an audio console, two turntables, two reel-to-reel -reel recorders, and one cart machine. Actually, I think the cart machine came later. Recordings were single-track affairs, and if you made a mistake, you did the whole thing over again. There was no real editing, other than with razor blades and tape. By the late 60s, it was possible to perform live edits to tape. By early this century, some radio stations had four-track digital recorders that cost several thousand dollars. 
Today, both sound booth and audition make possible the kinds of things that recording engineers only dreamed about in the 1970s, things that could be done in the 1980s, but only by recording engineers who worked in studios owned by the major recording companies. So now you can bring the digital recording studio right to your home or office, right on the desktop. To illustrate some of the more powerful features of Audition, let's examine audio processing. What if I need to make a recording in a noisy room and I'm unable to place the microphone close enough to the person who's speaking? So the overall sound level is low. Increase the sound level to bring up the voice, and the noise floor comes right up with it. The solution is to sample the noise and then drop it out, just the noise. Here's a clip with a lot of noise, and reducing it does degrade the sound of the voice. It could be improved through equalization and perhaps by adding a bit of reverb, but the result is little short of amazing. Here's an example of a bad recording. There's a fan running in the room, and I'm too far from the microphone. Now I've brought the audio up to the point where it should be, but the noise came up with it. There's a way to make that go away. I created a sample of just the noise and then used Adobe Audition to drop out the noise. Not bad, huh? Because the sound card I have supports full duplex, which is to say simultaneous record and playback, kind of like on the phone when you can talk and listen at the same time, it's possible to have a sound playing through the speakers while I'm recording. Okay, so I'm going to be getting... Now I'm going to be recording over here, even though I'm talking there in the background, and that's really pretty silly. Let's unmute that. Now there's a lot of me talking. Very strange. Mute that, mute that. Now I'm back here and it's quiet again. And with just a little effort, I can create a sound that you'll recognize if you listened to AM Top 40 radio stations in the 1960s. Here's a clip that includes hard limiting to remove audio peaks, amplitude adjustments to make it sound louder, and compression. The only thing that's missing from the new WCOL sound here is the reverb. Testing, one, two, three, four, five. This is a test. Wow, is that ever loud? And did I say reverb? Testing, Testing. One, one, two, two three, three, four, four five. five. This, this is, is a test. test. All right, enough silliness and playing around. So which of the programs is right for you? Audition is one complicated audio program. Unless you already know a lot about audio production, you won't even be able to understand it, much less be able to use it to accomplish anything useful without probably several weeks of intense study and work. When you make a recording, should your sample rate be 32 kilohertz, 44.1 kilohertz, or 48 kilohertz? Should you use 16-bit resolution or 32-bit resolution? Should your output have a bit rate of 32 kilobits per second, 96 kilobits per second, 200 kilobits per second, or something else? And why? Well, if you can answer those questions without having to reach for a reference manual, you are ready for audition. Otherwise, you're going to find that Sound Booth will be a much more satisfying choice. And by the way, here are the answers I would give to those questions. The maximum frequency you can reproduce is half the sampling rate. The most common rate is 44.1 kilohertz. That's what's used on CDs. But your sound card may limit you to another rate. When I use the ASIO function of my sound card, I am limited to 48 kilohertz. You'll have much less trouble with clipped audio if you do all of your production work with 32-bit resolution, 
which gives you a dynamic range of 192 decibels instead of the standard 96 decibels afforded by 16-bit signals. You will need to convert the final output to 16 bits for most uses, so I start at 32 bits and stay there until the final mixdown. And then there's the bitrate. Well, that affects the quality of the output. Better quality means larger files. 32 kilobits per second approximates AM radio quality. That's what I use for the podcast. 96 kilobits per second approximates FM radio quality. 200 kilobits per second is about CD quality. If you need a high bitrate, consider using a lossless encoding format such as WAVE or AUG instead of MP3. And for TechBiter Worldwide, a key consideration is download time and streaming quality, so I use a low bitrate. Adobe Audition is the application designed for audio specialists who produce audio professionally for bands, radio, video, and the web. It's a complete and complex application. I keep saying complex. Well, it is. It's a complete and complex application that takes a significant amount of time and effort to master. Although I've been working with audio since the mid-1960s, I was totally lost when I first opened Audition. After reviewing the manual that comes with Audition, reviewing half a dozen hours of instructional videos, and leafing through two library books on audio production, well, I feel I've mastered at least maybe 11% of what Audition has to offer. On the other hand, when I opened Adobe Sound Booth, I immediately understood many of its capabilities. Instructional materials on Adobe's website provided information needed to perform complex tasks. So Sound Booth is intended to be a tool for video editors, flash designers, motion graphic artists who have to deal with audio but are not audio professionals. Sound Booth does not replace Audition. Audition does not replace Sound Booth. I talked about SoundBooth with Adobe Senior Product Manager Lawson Hancock. He told me he's responsible for both Audition and SoundBooth. There's two products that I look after. Uh, one is called Adobe Audition, which was um, formerly known as Cool Edit Pro. Right. Uh, and that's our flagship audio tool uh, designed for uh, audio professionals, so folks that are you know, musicians to recording and mastering engineers, uh, folks in broadcast doing post for both television and radio. Um, so we we have that product that we actually launched an update of that, Audition 3, about a year ago. And then we have SoundBooth, which is a product we introduced with Creative Suite 3 uh, as kind of a new category of audio app designed for folks who don't know a lot about audio. So it's really targeted toward our Creative Pro customers who may be video editors or motion graphics folks or flash professionals who occasionally need to work with audio, but it's not their primary thing. It's not their primary tool. So SoundBooth has some of the capabilities that Audition has, but it's packaged and, and the interface is certainly quite different. Talk a little bit about the development process uh, for establishing the, the feature list and what you're going to, what kind of features you're going to take out of Audition and incorporate in a in a program like SoundBooth, and how you can do that so that uh, so that they're accessible to people who really, in many cases, don't have a clue how audio even works. I mean, we did a lot of talking to a lot of customers. That was really what uncovered, where we uncovered the need for SoundBooth uh, was in talking to a lot of our, our video professional customers and our Flash customers who really needed, needed a tool for audio, but when they looked at Audition, it was too much for them. It was overwhelming. Out of that, we started to sort of dig into what was overwhelming about it and try to understand. And, and really what we found was that you know, Audition is a very broad tool. It's been around for a long time. It has a lot of parameters, a lot of options. 
basically what we did is we took sort of the approach of more of a task-based approach, you know, stepping users through sort of common uh, audio tasks and really coming up with some intelligent defaults, giving them less parameters. So, if, for example, if you look at the noise reduction uh, that's built into SoundBooth, which, which was part of SoundBooth CS3, there's basically two sliders there. The noise reduction in Audition, there's probably about 10 or more. Yes. Um, so it was really about sort of simplifying and boiling it down to something that, you know, our users can understand. And, and we tested it a lot. Uh, we, we, you know, we test the interface in the lab, so quite a bit of usability studies uh, and, you know, customer visits and interviews to really get the feedback to find something that would be more approachable. And you, you've, there are a number of the features that are actually essentially wizard controlled. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's, that is what, and in my mind at least, makes SoundBooth unique as an audio tool is this more task-based uh, orientation to audio and to working with audio. A lot of the uh, things that happen here, uh, and this happens throughout the, the CS4 suite, it, it really is, is pretty remarkable. The applications seem to be very aware of each other. If you're using one application and you want to do something in SoundBoot, you can launch that from another application. It takes the file and then it passes it back with its round trip kind of technology. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like the sum of the parts, right? It's all integrated together. And, and what's new this time uh, with SoundBooth is we're not only integrated with the video tools, we're also integrated with Flash authoring, which is also why you see SoundBooth is included both in the video suite, production premium, as well as in the, the web suite, the web premium configuration. Next, we talked about some of the new features in the CS4 version of SoundBooth. Features that extend the application's capabilities far beyond those required for just simple editing. The uh, first big one really is multi-track support. So when we originally introduced SoundBooth with CS3, it was purely for working on individual mono or stereo files. So giving you the ability to take individual WAV files, MP3s, etc., and do, you know, edit and clean those up. Now what we've done is we now have a multi-track interface that we've created so that now you can combine different clips together, uh, giving you a lot more creative power. So now you, know, you can have sound effects and voiceover and, and music and other content and just all roll together into one interface and be able to save that and share that with the other Creative Suite apps. So that was probably our, really our, our, the big, one of the big changes in CS4. Along with that, we introduced a new file format called the Adobe Sound Document, or you'll see it also referred to as ASND, uh, which is the extension. And essentially what this is is a package file format that when you're working in a multi-track environment, all of those assets are contained essentially in this file. So you can almost think of it like a zip, because essentially that's what it is. So it contains all the assets as well as the stereo mixdown of the result of all those assets being combined together. And then when you open that A sound in the other Creative Suite tools, Flash, After Effects, or Premiere Pro, it will essentially render out the mixdown onto any of those timelines. And then when you do edit in SoundBooth from any of those apps, it will take you back into SoundBooth and you'll see the full multi-track layout and you can make changes and then, as you said before, do the round trip. The other aspect of the sound document that was really important to the customers we were targeting with this was that it's non-destructive nature. So essentially, we copy the original assets into the A sound, so you always can go back to the originals. And then we also have a capability called snapshots, which allows you at any time when you're working on uh, your audio portion of the project, you can just take a snapshot of the work in progress, which means that any time, even if you've committed your save, 
you can always go back to a previous snapshot. So it's essentially like a version of your work in progress. Ben Lawson provided a quick example of working with layers. I have, like I say, I have music files and I have environmental files, so I can also bring in uh, additional scores to other tracks if I want to add music and layer that onto here too. So it's just a really quick and easy way now to add a lot of different kind of things to, to my audio to really sweeten it and enhance it. And then within these scores, you can control the volume. So if I want to just have it be more of a background, I can just bring the volume down. Or I also have keyframes here too. So if I want to, I can bring the volume up in a particular section, bring it down in, in certain other sections uh, if, if, I, if I want to do that. So then I'll just play a little bit of this again. Nothing to have and have not. So it's, an, it's plagiarism. Basically now I've got a little bit of background noise so mm -hmm. these two, two guys that are talking, now you kind of have more of a sense of place. Working with digital audio requires development of better recording practices. In the days of tape, a little over-modulation didn't really hurt anything. In fact, some engineers thought that sound was a bit richer that way. Digital audio just sounds distorted when that happens. So Lawson and I talked about some other good practices for working with digital audio. The best practice there is um, certainly using the A-Sound format in particular, being able to save snapshots of your work in progress. So if you're working with the A-Sound format, you always know that your originals are safe. I think that's what I've heard most from creative pros who were essentially afraid to work with audio or very hesitant is that they're always afraid they're going to destroy the originals. Well, if you're working with within using the A-Sound format, you're never going to destroy the originals. There's probably and, some, some synergy uh, among the various CS4 components uh, in that uh, you, know, the, you, you see the same kind of thing happening uh, in Photoshop. Uh, if, you, if you're careful and you use layers rather right. than going in and editing the, the raw image, uh, you've always got your original back there if you need it. Right, exactly. And then use snapshots to sort of uh, capture some of your work in progress. So that'll, you know, that'll also be another, another fallback. Um, I think the other thing I would say, you know, use effects sparingly. <laughs> I mean, we have a whole, a whole rack of effects, uh, which you've probably seen, um, but you can go crazy with that stuff, you know. Um, it's really more about, you know, you want to use just the, enough effects to, you know, to, um, you know, set the mood for what you need. Right. Um, you, you don't want the, uh, the desktop publishing, uh, equivalent of a ransom note. Yeah. In audio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think the other thing too, is just, uh, when, when you're working across multiple clips on a multi-track environment, um, you, what's going to stand out more, right? It's, it's whatever that narration is, whatever that voice is, what's your message, right? And you need to make sure that, the music and the backgrounds and the sound effects don't get in the way of that. So that's sort of a subtle art of, you know, using, adding in sound effects and music, et cetera, to help set the mood to when you're trying to tell your story, whether that's a 30 second commercial spot or a document or a long form documentary, but make sure that that doesn't get in the way. Yeah, that is a very subtle art. I'd say, you know, one thing I was thinking about this, I was talking recently to some of our radio customers, NPR does a great job of this. Like if you listen to, to NPR and they have their pieces, you know, where they, they, they know how to get in natural sounds in the right places and things like that. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. You know, I think we take it for granted, but they're, they're the, the folks that do a lot of that content because they know uh, BBC World Service also is another great example. They're a customer of ours uh, for audition. They know that they're communicating purely through an audio. If you're communicating through an audio only medium, you know, you have to use, 
other sounds to sort of get people into the mind because we're so visual. Yes. Uh, and that's where using natural sounds, and that's one of the reasons why we targeted having the environmental scores so that people could drop some of those natural sounds into their projects, again, to kind of en enhance the experience. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, ultimately, uh, this tool certainly, you know, my main goal is to, is to support all of our visual stuff, but also but Adobe's broader message is communicate ideas through any medium. And the reality is, is that when we're in our cars, uh, hopefully we're just listening and, and not watching. <laughs> we would <TV> hope. Or... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in those scenarios, we want to be able to also provide tools that are going to help people um, communicate those ideas in, in the audio-only medium as right. well. Well, it's bottom line time. Sound booth. Sound booth is powerful and surprisingly easy to master, even if you don't have any idea what a decibel is. If an evil mastermind should capture me and give me one day to teach somebody how to edit, clean, and normalize an audio track, Soundbooth is the program I would want. You won't find as many features in Soundbooth as you'll find in Audition, but the feature set is surprisingly robust, and the interface makes the tools accessible. So Soundbooth earns five cats. Audition, on the other hand, this is the tool that will delight audio professionals. Others, perhaps, should keep their distance. For the general public, Audition scores four cats, or maybe even three, because of the frustration that these unintended users will encounter. If you are an audio engineer, you'd want to replace the four cat rating with five plus cats, because Audition will be able to do anything you can think of, and probably some things you can't think of. So three, four, five, or more cats, depending on who you are. From Sound Without Pictures, we go to Pictures Without Sound. A program named J-Album has been around for a few years. I've mentioned it a time or two. It is a free download that makes it easy for just about anybody to create an online photo album. And once you do that, you can share it. J-Album even gives users a free account with enough space for a few modest albums. You can rent more space, or if you have your own server, place images there. And J-Album will even help you publicize it. I said that J-Album is easy to use. Well, the proof is in the album, so let me describe how I would make one. First, you download the application. It's pretty small, takes just a few minutes, and install it. Then you start the application. It'll ask you to set up an account on the J-Album server. You can skip that step if you want to, but you really don't want to, because once you do it, it makes sharing your photos easier, even if you don't use the J-Album server, even if you put the images on your own server. So go ahead and start an account. Then you start a new project. Drop some photos into it. Drag and drop the images until you have them in the order you like. If there are images you later decide you don't want to include in the album, just right-click them and select Exclude. Then you select the overall look you'd like the album to have, and if there are optional variants, pick some of those. Some have additional settings beyond that. Make your selections, build the album. One of the albums allows users to tilt and swirl the thumbnail page and individual images. You get to the individual images by clicking on a thumbnail that enlarges it on the screen. How long the build process takes depends on the complexity of the skin you've selected, how many images you've included, and your computer. The one that I'll show you on the TechBiter Worldwide website took about 45 seconds. 
The next and almost final step is to upload the finished album. You can send it to the J Album site if you want. In my case, I just put it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The upload speed depends on how fast your internet uplink is. And, well, that's it. When the album is complete and uploaded, it will be listed automatically unless you make it private on your J Album page. So this is why I suggested that you go ahead and create an account. This is true whether the album is stored on J Album or elsewhere. At this point, you can add widgets to the page or use J Album's tools to publicize the page by email or on one of the social networking services. If you'd like to take a look at the album I created for this program, you can find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Bottom line for J Album, four cats. It's a free application that's easy to use and almost always does what you expect it to do. I'm always really happy when a free application works well, does exactly what it's supposed to do, and doesn't get in the way. J-Album goes far beyond what's expected in every category except for the upload process. Sometimes it gets just a little dicey there. This is no big deal if you have an FTP application, but J-Album really isn't intended for web professionals, and if you're not a web professional or some sort of IT professional, you may not have an FTP application. But those are pretty easy to get, too. And several good ones are free. In nerdly news, I've been wondering if Flight Simulator crashed or was shot down. Flight Simulator goes back to the very beginning of the personal computer era. Computers were considered IBM PC compatible if they could run Flight Simulator. But now the flight appears to be ending. Microsoft plans to lay off 5,000 employees and has already closed the Aces studio. Aces developed the Flight Simulator series of games. Flight Simulator is Microsoft's oldest surviving product. First version shipped in 1982. Microsoft says it remains committed to the Flight Simulator franchise. When you close the operation that's responsible for the application, users might tend to question that commitment. But a Microsoft spokesman says that Flight Simulator will continue to exist. Exist. What exactly does that mean? Well, for now, Microsoft is just not talking about it. Sounds like a solid commitment, doesn't it? Clearly, Flight Simulator is lower in the pecking order than Windows 7 or the Office Suite, and the company is still trying to determine just how bad the current economic downturn is, how long it will last, and how serious it will be for Microsoft. So there are a lot of decisions that still need to be made on a lot of different topics. Barring catastrophic fiscal problems, though, Flight Simulator is likely to survive in one form or another, even if it's relegated to nothing more than being a Microsoft Live online game. The latest version of Microsoft's Internet Explorer is at release candidate stage. In Microsoft's words, Internet Explorer 8 RC1 is now platform and feature complete, and this is your opportunity to be among the first to try out the new browser before its final release. Install it today and take it on a test drive. We think you'll agree it's faster, safer, and easier than ever to use. So the question is, do you want to install it or not? In one way, it's a one-way street. Microsoft says to ensure your browser is up to date, all RC1 users will be automatically updated with the final version of Internet Explorer 8 via the Windows Update service, so you'll always have the latest version of the browser. On the other hand, you are allowed to make a U-turn. 
Again, it's quoting Microsoft. If you don't like it, you can easily uninstall it whenever you want. But I still haven't answered the question. The question was, should you install it? Well, if you want to be sure that you always have the most recent version of Internet Explorer, sure. If that describes you, though, you've probably already downloaded one of the previous beta releases. You probably know more about it than I do. Beta software is not something the average computer user should install, but release candidates are different. They are the next step beyond beta. The application is considered good enough to release, but final testing and coding is still in process, particularly in terms of reliability and stability. At this point, no functions should be added or removed from the code. Anything between RC1 and the final gold code, all the features are in place. And usually the update from RC1 to the final release version is automatic, as it will be with IE. If you don't want to take a chance, on the other hand, you can simply wait a few months and Microsoft will offer you the new download as part of the Windows update when they finally release IE 8. What I have for you today is just a first look, not a full review of the new version of IE. But here are some notes I took. When you run the IE 8 installer, it will create a directory without asking you where to create it. It creates that directory so it can unpack the installation files. Because I pay attention during installations, I noticed that it picked drive Z. That's Z as in Z, not C. That is my hot backup drive. It is not a location I would ever allow an application to place files. And then it created a directory. The directory was called 0B0282D18641D046B7D1147. Nice name. Well, when the installer finishes, it will ask you to restart the computer. You can delay this until it's convenient for you. Because of the way Windows works, I expected this. Even so, the installer really should warn you about it before you start the installation process. During the restart, by the way, the installer removed that funky directory from drive Z. Well, on starting Internet Explorer 8 for the first time, you will be asked if you want IE to suggest sites for you based on sites you have already visited. Does this sound to you like stumble upon? Well, I said yes. So far, it hasn't suggested anything. The next question turned out to be just a bit more complicated. It suggested that I could use the Express settings, Google search, several accelerators turned on, translate with live search, make IE my default browser, and set the compatibility view, whatever that is, to use updates. Wait a minute. Make IE my default browser? Uh, no, sail there. Or I can review each setting on my own. So, of course, that's the choice I made. I kept Google as my default search engine, but asked to see a page of accelerators so I could understand what they do. More about those later. I left the smart screen filter on, which means that Microsoft will try to warn about phishing sites... Opera and Firefox already do this. And I did not allow IE to name itself the default browser. Then there's the compatibility view. This makes websites designed for what Microsoft calls older browsers look better in IE8. I presume this means that IE8 is more standards-based and will ignore IE hacks that developers have been forced to use to make their pages work with earlier versions of Internet Explorer. Well, I enabled that. Then I looked at the list of the accelerators. It offered me an accelerator, which is essentially a quick link for blogging, Blogger or Windows Live Spaces, for dictionary definitions, Google Define or MSN and Carta, for mapping, Google Maps, Live Search Maps, or Yahoo Local Maps, for email, Gmail or Windows Live Hotmail, and for translations, Google Translate or Windows Live Translator. Now, from the looks of the page that it presented, it appeared that I could pick one from each category. As it turned out later, I actually could have selected all of them. 
So at the time, thinking I was limited to just one in each category, I selected Blogger, Google Define, Google Maps, Gmail, and Google Translate. Again, because the instructions weren't very good, what I found later was that the accelerators I selected either really hadn't been installed or had not been set as the default. So maybe better instructions will be added between Release Candidate 1 and the release version. Then I asked IE8 to play a movie to show me how accelerators work and what they do. I'll tell you more about accelerators in a later program. After all, this is just a first look. If you'd like to take a look at Internet Explorer 8 Release Candidate 1, you'll find a link to the Microsoft download site on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And again, that's www.techbiter.com. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.